Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Joe Heschmeyer of Holy Family School of Faith and Shameless Popery. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chloe. So we're in the middle of our Advent series. We're taking a traditional approach to Advent and talking about the four last things. We're going to switch it up from what you may normally think of the four last things of death, judgment, heaven, and hell, and instead today talk about hell for a couple reasons. Yeah, first of all, it's... We didn't want to end the four-part series right before Christmas by talking about hell. We wanted to get this episode out of the way. Uh, but also, it's the order John Paul II talks about them and his document on reconciliation and penance. So he puts them in that order. And it does seem fitting to talk about the reality of hell, but the good news of the gospel really is good news. I mean, the good news of the gospel is even though through your sins you might deserve hell, the offer of redemption is there. So it ends with and is couched in terms of heaven. Um, otherwise, I think you just misunderstand the gospel. So let's start off today's conversation with a classic question. Is the idea of hell, an eternity of suffering apart from God, compatible with the idea of an all-good, loving God, the God we see as Father? Yeah, so I actually did a four-part series on my blog, Shameless Popery. Uh, talking about this recently. And you, if you want to, you can go on there and you can take a look at it. But we're, we'll talk about some of the same subjects today. But I think to understand what we mean by hell, uh, you have to understand how we're wired, what we're made for, and why we can't be happy with anything other than God. Because here's the thing. People want to say there is a God. This God is all good. Our hearts are made for him. But if that's all true, and it's true that we can knowingly, consciously reject this God, now then, it, by definition, it seems like it's got to be true that we can end up deeply, permanently unhappy. So we can get into some of the details about, you know, can you have sort of a repentance after death? Short answer, no. Uh, you can make a final choice. So what we say about the goodness of God logically actually entails. It doesn't preclude the possibility of hell. It virtually requires it. If you say God is this set of all good, that the only eternal infinite good is God, well, then nothing besides God will make you happy in the same way. So let's start off by talking about that infinite craving that we have for good here on earth as human beings and how everything that we do here on earth is ultimately in pursuit of that good. Yeah, so there's a quote Pope Francis has that I really like where he talks about how our infinite sadness can only be cured by an infinite love. And what he means there is that we are wired for the good. We are wired for love and for goodness. And everything we do is in pursuit of that. Every intentional action you or I have ever made is because we thought something would make us happy in some way. And if you think that's false, stop and think about any action. Even the most ridiculous action. Even the most self-destructive action that you've ever done. On some level... If you were to really understand why you did it, you thought it would make you happy in some way. Maybe it would give you a rush of adrenaline. Maybe it would give you some sort of distraction from some deeper pain you didn't want to deal with. Maybe it would give you an outlet to express your frustration. And so some sort of release. Whatever it is, you were looking for some form of happiness in that. Maybe it was a temporary physical pleasure, whatever it is. From your greatest and most noble act to your worst sin, all of them were done with the same goal. Now that's a profound realization mm -hmm. once you recognize it. That you are hardwired for good inescapably. 
there's a parallel between the intellect and the will. Your intellect is always hungry to know true things. It never wants to know lies that it knows are lies. Mm -hmm. It never is like, here's a thing I know is false, and I'm happy to just be satisfied with being lied to, or I'm happy. You know, you want to know the truth. Your intellect always wants, on some level, to know the truth. And so even if you choose to believe a lie, you have to convince yourself that it's true in some way. Uh, even if you're innocently lied to, you know, and all of those things, you might accept a lie, but you accept it not because it's a lie. You accept it because you can rationalize on some level that maybe it's true. Like no kid believes that Santa Claus comes to their house because they're believing a lie. Like they believe that Santa Claus comes to their house through the chimney because they've been told that it's true. And if you knowingly are holding to something that isn't true, like if you know it's not true, mm -hmm. You don't really believe that thing. I mean, in, right. in the idea of belief is a, a recognition of the thing as true to the best of your knowledge mm -hmm. or that you're choosing to accept it as true in some way. Right. You can't. I mean, it's just it's literally impossible. It's a, an interior contradiction uh, to say that you recognize something as false, uh, but believe it anyway. There is actually a great G.E. Moore had Moore's Paradox where it goes something like, I think it'll rain this afternoon, but it probably won't. And the point is, you just can't, like, that is an incoherent statement. It probably won't means I think it probably won't. Right, yeah. So he's just, he ends up just contradicting himself, which all of that proves is that you, you can't intellectually hold to something that you believe to be false. And so likewise, your will can't pursue something that you think will make you unhappy in all regards. Now, you might think this thing will make me unhappy in some ways. Mm -hmm. You might think this vacation is very expensive and that's going to really hurt when I have to pay for it three weeks from now. But you can't think this is going to make me unhappy in all regards and I'm going to do it anyway. It, no human has ever done anything uh, for that reason. And that's a, that's a hard thing to kind of wrap one's mind around. But it's something that I think is really important. Now, that doesn't mean that everything you do will successfully attain that happiness. But it does mean that everything you do is in pursuit of happiness. Blaise Pascal, uh, the famous mathematician, philosopher, and theologian, said it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end, or we might say to this goal. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It's such a dramatic and profound yeah. way. Like, yeah. Even the person committing suicide has to think on some level, well, this, this will make me happier than living. And so you think the most self-destructive action you can imagine is still done chasing happiness. Aquinas describes it similarly. Uh, he talks about how the first principle of practical reason is that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided. So this is going to be true in two ways. On one level, on the level of conscience, when we know what we ought to do or ought not to do, it's because intellectually we realize this mm -hmm. thing is good and ought to be done, this thing is evil and ought to be avoided. But there's a deeper level in which this is just a law that we find 
inescapable. That if we perceive something as totally wicked, we're not going to be drawn towards it at all. Like if we see no good that we can get out of it, if this will only hurt us, you know, you're not just going to put your hand on the burner unless you've got some reason you think that'll make you really happy. So because of that, this has a really important consequence. It means that the entire moral life makes sense. Because it means we can actually have thou shalt, thou shalt not Mm -hmm. kind of instructions. Why? Because if everyone is committed to the same thing, they want happiness, then we have to distinguish between two sets of things. Real versus apparent goods. An apparent good is something that looks good but isn't. You reach for something, you think it's tasty, but it actually is terrible. Mm -hmm. When I was a baby... I was crawling around on the ground at a sports stadium, at a Royals game, and I picked up what I thought was a pickle and put it in my mouth, and it was a jalapeno, (laughs) and I hated it, and I didn't eat pickles for 11 years after that. (laughs) Deeply scarred. Deeply scarred. (laughs) I've more than made up for it now. I love pickles because I've forgiven them and realized it wasn't their fault. This was an illusory pickle. It was a jalapeno, (laughs) which I never would have consciously chosen, Mm -hmm. but I received it as a pickle, and it, it turned out not to be. Well, sin is a little bit like that. It looks good, but then it turns out not to be. Well, there's another category too. And that's what are called lesser goods. In this case, it's not something where it's just bad. It's something that it's a lower good. And it's sinful to choose a lower good over a higher good. Why? Because you're choosing less happiness over more happiness. And so it makes you less happy in the long run. But in saying that, it doesn't mean that the lower good isn't a good. Sometimes it just has to be enjoyed in moderation. It's why you don't go to the restaurant and fill up on breadsticks. Some part of you realizes the breadsticks are good, but they're not the point of the meal. And so if you filled up on breadsticks, that would be ridiculous. Okay, so the whole point of the moral law then is not to impede our freedom. The whole point of the moral law is to give us guidance so we can succeed At our own life's goal. This isn't God saying, no, don't do the thing you want to do. Do this thing instead. This is God saying, look, the thing you want to do in every action you've ever taken shows this is pursue happiness. But these things aren't going to give you lasting happiness. These other things will. And so don't do these things. Do these things in moderation. Pursue these things with all your heart. That's the idea. So in the same way that if you were committed to playing soccer your coach would say well don't kick it in that goal that's your goal that's not helping you it might feel like you're doing a good job but you're not it's a a lot of our life is kind of like that we're scoring what are called own goals you know we're yep we're committing error after error now if you're committed to victory and everything you're doing is in pursuit of that and again for every one of us that's true in terms of the pursuit of happiness then it really matters. Well, how do we and how don't we? I mean, this might seem kind of obvious to some listeners. There are probably other listeners who think, well, why do I do these dumb things? And I I think hopefully that's clear enough. Just say, examine it deeper Mm -hmm. and see why do you think that those things will make you happy? Because on some level, even if it's just on the level of the senses or on a really biological level, you can have a craving for something that some part of you is still convinced Make it happy. Even as your intellect says, no, it won't. Mm -hmm. 
And then there are others out there listening who are like, well, obviously. But the important thing is, is that this shows that the moral law, it's not an external imposition of authority. This isn't God just saying, I'm going to restrict your ability to do what you want to do to be happy. This is God showing us that pickle you're trying to pick up is actually helping you. So even though you're too dumb to know it, this thing's not actually going to make you happy. You know, you can imagine a little kid wanting to put a fork in the light socket and the parents say, no, don't do that. Maybe even punishing the kid to really deter them from wanting to do that in the future. Well, from the kid's perspective, that just felt like arbitrarily reining in my desire to have fun. <laughs> but of course, from the outside, from a more knowledgeable perspective, we can say, no, that was a loving act towards that kid. I love those examples of parents and kids too, because when, as we're talking about the moral life, it's easy to think of, this is something that enslaves me. This is something that restricts me and holds me back. But when we see it in light of the conversation that we've just had, we're able to see God as that father who guides instead of a master who enslaves us. Exactly. Because all of us, whether we listen to God or whether we rebel from him, are, are involved in the same pursuit. Mm -hmm. We're all seeking the same thing. We're seeking happiness. We're seeking goodness. And unfortunately, and so here comes the bad news, all of these other happiness, uh, all these other happinesses, if you want to say mm -hmm. it that way, all these other sources of goodness are limited, they're finite, and they're imperfect. And so they don't really make us happy in a, a permanent, lasting, perfect way. And so it ends up being really kind of, depressing mm -hmm. it can feel like kind of a sick joke like here's all these things in this earth that you think will make you happy but they actually won't and there's actually only infinite answers to our longings yeah so when pope francis describes this as an infinite sadness he means exactly mm -hmm. that one of these signs that we are meant for eternity is that we have a chasm in our hearts that no animal ever has you know you can find a totally content dog they have no problems being content. But if you give the same things to a human being, they're not going to no. be content. Now, there are a lot of things you might think uh, will make you content. In the blog post, I talk about how, as a kid, I loved going to hotels. Like, it was just a lot of fun. And so it's easy to imagine, as a six-year-old, I could just live here. Like, that would be so much fun. The daughter of one of my friends was complaining to her mom recently that they went to their real house instead of the show and tell, which is what she calls hotel. <laughs> That's fantastic. But if you actually lived in a show and tell, <laughs> if you actually spent a month living in a hotel or two months or a year or 10 years, the appeal would wear off. On some level, if you've lived long enough and if you've done enough stupid things, you know this. Now, there's an interesting paradox, which is that people who haven't sinned in really dramatic ways, people who've always had a certain level of self-restraint, often have in the back of their mind the lie that maybe sin would really make them happy. Mm -hmm. That maybe if they just did those things, they actually would really love it. Maybe you've had this experience where there's some sinful thing you really wanted to do that you didn't, but then like afterwards you're like, I kind of wish I had. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish I'd said that thing to my boss. I kind of wish I'd really unloaded. I kind of wished I'd, you know, cheated on my partner with whatever, or whatever the case, right? You can have some sin that seems like maybe that one actually would have been the one to make me happy. And you can have this kind of uh, remorse, this kind of missing 
the sins not committed. Because on some level, you can have this unconverted bit. So a question that I like to ask people is, even though this isn't theologically possible, suppose God wasn't looking for a day. There was no accountability. Everyone would forget the thing that you did. What would you do without any sort of external negative feedback? Society doesn't punish you. God doesn't punish you. What would you do? Whatever your answer is to that, that's the unconverted part of you. That's the part of you that is like, well, maybe this sin actually would make me happy. And here's the, here's the reason I call it a paradox. It's at least ironic. Because the people who know best that it's a lie are the ones who've tried to chase it. Like the recovering alcoholic, the person who's totally done everything they can to live a life of hedonism for, say, 10, 20, 30 years, and has really hit rock bottom. That person knows, no, those other crazy impulses I might have in the back of my mind, they're not for my good. They're not going to actually make me happy. And so even if I might feel a really strong desire to do them, I'm not just not doing them because someone else tells me not to. I'm not doing them because it's not actually going to make me happy. It's like the people who've hit rock bottom know how hard that bottom is actually to hit. And they have that experience of knowing that there is no fulfillment. I don't know. If you've ever been to an AA meeting, the stories tend to go something like this. They start drinking Mm -hmm. because it's a lot of fun. They continue drinking because it hurts worse not to drink. Right. And so the amount of fun they're even getting out of it quickly diminishes. Uh, Anthony Eslin, who has a great uh, translation of uh, Dante's Inferno that I'm currently reading for Advent, he, uh, he described it this way in a talk that he gave once, that the devil promises us steak but feeds us cardboard. Yeah. And I love that yeah. image. Because yeah. you might get a couple bites of steak just to get you hooked. But then you just get fed cardboard. And you just think, well, this isn't as good as I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of constant struggle with sin, but also not even just with sin. Let's make it broader. Even pursuing otherworldly goods, they just don't ever satisfy as much as we want them to. Even the, we don't have to be talking about doing heroin. You can be talking about just having the job of your dreams, mm-hmm. having the relationship of your dreams. None of it is as good as we might imagine. All of it has faults. All of it has imperfections. All of it has these limitations. And in an unfortunate twist, too, it's unfair to put those expectations on things, but especially people. Like, I think my husband is going to be the ultimate source of my happiness. And then it turns out that you just, everything can bust because people can't handle that pressure of being that infinite perfection and happiness filler. St. Paul has two really good images that he uses. He talks about how every fatherhood is a participation in the fatherhood of God. Mm-hmm. And then he talks in Ephesians 5 about the role of the husband as being like Christ to the church in his relationship to his wife. But the risk is that we expect our parents to actually be perfect, to be divine, to be God. And that we expect our spouses to be Christ, to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I hear uh, from, I've found this especially with unhappy wives, but I think it's probably true in both directions, is that they expected their husband to be Christ and he turned out not to be. Hopefully he's Christ-like. Right. But even the most Christ-like man is going to fall mm-hmm. dramatically short. And so someone who's really built up this edifice of marriage and made an idol of it yep. uh, quickly finds out that it's 
unfulfilling in some way. And they think, oh, I just married the wrong person. Well, I've got bad news for you. I'll save you like Zaza Gabor levels of marriages. You're not going to find a person mm-hmm. who does fill that in the way that only God can fill it. So this is the, the limitation of all of earthly existence. And in the, in the blog series, I compare it to what are called hungry ghosts or preta. This is a, a common trope in Eastern religion and Eastern mysticism and mythology. You find it in Tibetan, Chinese, and Japanese writings. And what they are are these damned souls that roam the earth always hungry and never satisfied. So they're often depicted with this little pinhole mouth and a giant stomach. Mm. So one of the Tibetan texts um, talks about how they receive their suffering as bitter fruits. And then it says, for momentary or wealth and property, fleeting is the life here on earth. Knowing transience from the transient, let the wise man prepare an island of refuge. In other words, these earthly things aren't going to make you happy. And basically every religion in the world is tied in some way to this recognition. You're not really going to be happy. Um, there's also, if you want to go like Western mythology, the, there's a Greek myth involving this guy who cuts down uh, a sacred tree and there's a wood nymph and the nymph curses him uh, with a, basically a demon where he's he's filled with this hunger and every time he eats it just makes him hungrier and so it's a really ghastly story and in the end the guy kills himself by eating himself oh my gosh so it's it's gory but it's also i think a representation of the way we can be consumed by our own mm-hmm. desires. We use that language, consumed by our own desires. That you chase some earthly thing, it dominates your life, and the more you get, the more you want to get. You get a little taste of fame, you want more fame. You get a little money, you want more money. And so you can start to cling to these things in a way that doesn't actually make you happy, but you can get really addicted to just getting a little more because maybe a little more would make you full. Because this guy who I just mentioned... Erisison, I think is his name. He, on some level, has to know, okay, you can keep eating, but you're not going to be happy. You can acquire all the goods in the world, but it's not going to fill your heart. It's not going to even fill your belly. Mm -hmm. And so it's that. Like, our souls can be like that, where they just are pursuing these things that aren't finally satisfying. And we see that in what we have, but we imagine the next thing will somehow fix that. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a general truth, but it's a truth that also uh, is amplified by kind of a capitalistic materialist society. So in the unfortunate twist, when you're pursuing things like money or business power or any kind of show of success in the world, that it really becomes this culture of distraction. So it's not that relationships or success or even wealth are bad things in and of themselves but when we pursue them enough that they distract us from our actual goal which is to be saints that's when they start to really work against us in that distraction yeah so i want to use another sports analogy there are all sorts of things in sports that can be helpful to achieve your goal the thing that i like about sports is that there's a very clear goal you're trying to win the game so if you're playing baseball for example well, how do you win? Well, one of the things that's important to do is to be able to run well. Okay, great. Or to be able to throw the ball well. Mm-hmm. But if you got caught up and thought it was just about running or just about throwing the ball, 
you might be playing catch, you might be having a track meet, but you're not actually playing baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't stop at first because you want to keep running because running's important. Well, then you're going to probably get out. Yep. Or you're going to be out of the baselines. It's not guided. It's not moderated. And so how do you know when to run, when to throw, when to stay, when not to run, when not to throw, etc.? Well, when does it help you towards your ultimate goal of winning the game? And when doesn't it? So that's the crazy thing about with baseball. There are times where you might even allow yourself to get out in like a sacrifice play because it ultimately helps your team right. uh, to win the game. So you have a very clearly defined goal. And if you always keep that final end in view, then you can have some rubric to say, was that a smart play or not? Mm-hmm. If I hear, oh, this guy uh, bunted and he was out at first, was that a good play or not? Well, it doesn't sound like it. But if a runner at third was able to get home because he was distracting the pitcher in this way, well then, yeah, that might have been a great play. Mm -hmm. But the only way to know is in in the view of the ultimate victory being pursued. So that's, I think, why it's, it's a distraction. Because these things, which are not bad of themselves, if you lose sight of why they matter and just treat them like the goal themselves, then you, you're not moderating them. You're not doing them well. You're just like the person who just starts running in baseball and never stops running. It's Yeah, it's definitely the importance of having this big picture, which is why it's important to have this conversation about the last things on a constant basis, not just during Lent, not just during Advent, because that does give us the big picture of things. Exactly. And because the other thing is, these things can be distracting of themselves. They're not just distractions in the sense that we can pursue them without sight of the end goal. They're also distractions because they take some attention to Mm -hmm. do. If you decide to pursue a raise at work, it's not necessarily bad, but it's going to take a certain amount of mental energy. All of that mental energy, all that time and attention can distract you from the big picture. Mm -hmm. It can distract you uh, from the final, the, the ultimate things in life. So that's why it's important to be taking time every single day in prayer, in quiet, allowing the big things in life to remain in view because otherwise you can really get caught up in the minutia. So in the four-part series I did, I quote uh, Joe Krause, who works at Google Ventures, and he's warning about what he calls a culture of distraction. Now, this is a talk he gave back in 2012, and since then, that culture of distraction has only gotten worse. But he gives some really kind of frightening stats. With smartphones, we check them an average of 27 times a day. And so the result is that we're less able to pay attention to what used to be reasonable lengths of time. So we see this very profoundly with little kids, that the neurological wiring for kids who have been exposed to a lot of this new technology is often they have very short attention spans. ADHD and all of that stuff, they're much more prone to having an inability to remain attentive for a long time because the instant gratification, the fast pace and all of that becomes so distracting. All of us in a certain way can be like that. Mm -hmm. We can get caught up in chasing this and the other thing and the next thing without ever really stopping to say, wait, why am I doing any of this? And so we end up just running around like chickens with our heads cut off, and and not really getting any closer. But all of that means that we're not filling in a, in a real way that hunger that we all have. We're not really filling uh, 
this infinite sadness, this chasm in our souls. So we have things on earth that we can hope fill us, but then after we pursue them, we come still back up empty. So then why should we believe that God is capable of filling that infinite chasm, that infinite hole in our souls? That's a good question. I think we want to talk about the way he fills it more Mm -hmm. in the next episode. But a few of the reasons, just right now, like why do we believe that God can fill this if nothing else can? Well, first, because he's our creator. You know, he's the one who created us with these hearts, with this infinite chasm, which means that either he can fill them or there's something spectacularly cruel about that, creating us with a hunger that nothing in this world can fill. C.S. Lewis points out from his argument from desire that one of the ways we can believe in the existence of God is that we have a hunger for him and that in this life, every hunger we have corresponds to some existing reality. You have literal hunger, you, though there's food. You have thirst, there's water. You have sexual desires, there's the opposite sex. Like there, All of these desires you have correspond to something real. And so if you have this desire for an infinite happiness with God, it would be very odd if this was the one desire on your heart that didn't have a corresponding reality. And so atheists, I think, have a hard time explaining why there is a religious desire at all. Mm -hmm. The attempts to try to explain it never really do a good job. That's a a conversation, obviously, for another day. But the fact that you have this desire, and the fact that every other desire has a satisfaction, means this one, the core one, the fundamental, foundational one, should too. And if it does, the chances are pretty darn good it's going to be in the person who instilled that desire in you. Mm -hmm in the first place it also is true because god is infinite you know he's greater than our hearts he knows everything that's first john three twenty. so without getting into the whole infinitude of god again that's a topic for another day <laughs> an infinite all-powerful all-good god by definition can fulfill this infinite chasm in the way that like a wendy's cheeseburger or an adulterous relationship can't mm-hmm. It also corresponds um, to what we know about the good. And this could, again, get into a much deeper rabbit hole. <laughs> these are all podcasts. Right. On their own. <laughs> all of these are just like kind of headline, <laughs> one-sentence sort of summaries of, of much bigger conversations. But one of the things Aquinas points out in his five ways is that there's a certain category of things in which good, better, best, good and better only make sense in terms of how much they get you towards the best, mm-hmm. towards the ideal. So... If we say something is a better temperature in terms of the room, like, well, it was too cold. This is a better temperature. Whether we're aware of it or not, that suggests that there is an ideal. That there's something that we're ultimately driving for. Because if there isn't, then you don't know if something's better or worse. So good, better, best ends up uh, corresponding to some perfect ideal. Mm -hmm. That perfect ideal is what we mean by God. Right. Because the best has to be so good that it's impossible for anything to be better than it. It's an infinite good. So God, as the best, must be perfect, must be infinite good. Well, that's exactly what our hearts are hungry for. This infinite chasm is hungry for an infinite good. And, moreover, an eternal good. Because one of the things we find is that even when something's really satisfying for a minute... It's less satisfying 
a little bit down. In economics, this notion of diminishing return, right? Like one thing is great. Two things isn't really twice as good for Mm -hmm. the most part. A donut is amazing. Five donuts is a little too much. Like, <laughs> There's limits. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, another reason we believe this, it would, I guess this is like the sixth reason, is that God's promises to us. St. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that God promises to us in which we'll contextualize our slight momentary afflictions, which prepare us for it. We'll get into that mm-hmm. in a second. But so all of this ends up being summarized really nicely, I think, by the opening of Confessions by St. Augustine. He says, Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. Man who bears about with him his mortality, the witness of his sin, even the witness that you resist the proud. Yet man, this part of your creation, desires to praise you. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So in other words, we're not just left like the hungry ghosts we Mm -hmm. talked about. We're not just left with this horrible curse of always being hungrier the more we try to attain. Rather, that hungry ghostness is really a restlessness of the heart because it hasn't found what it's looking for. Mm -hmm. And God, in perfect eternal union with God, is the one thing that will satisfy. I love that coming from Augustine, especially because he's a saint who did hit rock bottom and who did seek after those physical things on this earth that he thought could bring satisfaction. And he ultimately comes to this conclusion that he has this restless heart that can only be rested in God. Yeah. So all of this is kind of the good news. Mm. The bad news with that, though, is that if the heart can only be satisfied with God and you reject God... Dot, dot, dot. Like, obviously, you're going to be unsatisfied forever. You're going to be restless forever. You're never going to experience the eternal joy, the rest, the consolation. One of the things that uh, the Christian life is compared to in Scripture, like especially in Hebrews, is entering into the Sabbath rest of God. Mm-hmm. It's this notion. We talked about this a little bit in the Seventh-day Adventist episode. That there are these descriptions. We say things like rest in peace. And it's this rest of satisfaction. It's this rest of you were looking, you were looking, you were looking, and now you've got it. Mm -hmm. Without that, you always end up short of the rest. So the Sabbath is the seventh day. Six is the number of days of work. And so six becomes to represent this constant striving. It's the number of man, it's the number of creation. But it's creation longing for the seventh day, longing for God. Well, without it, you just end up with six, 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 and that's what Satan is. It's yep. this constant, restless struggle that's never satisfied, never content, and it becomes quite literally hellacious. Mm-hmm. So the fact that God can infinitely fill us is this beautiful case for heaven, but it's also this really good case for hell at the end of it. Right. You can't have two contrary infinities Mm -hmm. does that make sense this is something that uh, metaphysically that you could do an entire kind of like five page proof on why that is you can't have two distinct totally separate infinite goods you just can't and so even when we talk about god being all powerful you know a lot of times there's this question well why didn't god make it so we could be happy with something other than him Mm -hmm. that's not usually how people word it that's that's really what the question is Mm -hmm. Well, here we've got to talk about, if you will, the limitations 
of God's power. Because when we talk about God as omnipotent, we don't mean he can do logically incoherent, logically impossible kind of things. You know, the question, could God make a square circle? No. That doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis talks about how nonsense doesn't become anything other than nonsense just because you put God can before it. <laughs> I love that line. And so, yeah, Aquinas also talks about this, that when we talk about God's omnipotence, it's the power to do anything he wants to do. Well, any wanting, any desire is rooted in one's nature. We already saw this at the beginning of the episode with our nature. Right. This is true also of God. His nature is perfect goodness, perfect being. So he can't, for example, do evil things. And it's hard to even get our head around because we think of power just as like totally volitional mm -hmm. as like anything conceivable you could kind of do. Well, no. Power is rooted in the power to do what you want to do, and what you want to do is rooted in your nature. So just like the people listening, we just talked about how you can't desire something that isn't for your happiness. You don't have that capacity. You can talk about it, but you can't actually do it. Even trying to do it is really pursuing the good uh -huh. of like feeling good about yourself for being right. So <laughs> anyone who's now like, I'm going to do something really self-destructive right now, and that'll <laughs> teach them. Just to prove them wrong. Exactly. <laughs> so the same thing. When we talk about God's infinite, almighty majesty, we're talking about a perfectly all-powerful, all-good God. This is an important distinction because sometimes, especially some of the Calvinist authors I've read, you sometimes get the idea... I don't know if this is an accurate read of them or not, that their idea of God is detached from his goodness mm. such that God can do evil. Because if he couldn't do evil, he wouldn't be as powerful. And they want to really affirm the sovereign majesty and power of God. Well, that totally misunderstands the mm. way power works. It totally misunderstands the way the will works. And so it doesn't understand God's omnipotence. So God can't do anything contrary to his own nature, and he can't do anything that's logically impossible because that really is contrary to his own nature as a perfectly rational, mm -hmm. all-knowing God. What does this mean? It means that he can't create some uncreated infinite good. If he creates something tremendously good, it still isn't going to be as good as him by virtue of the fact that it's a created good. He is its source. He is its author. He is uncreated good. So it's impossible for him to make another God equal to him because by virtue of the fact that he is God and he made the other one, the other one wouldn't be God. Mm -hmm. It would be a creation. It would be this. a creation, a really majestic creation, yeah, yeah. but not God. So once you get that, you can see it's impossible to be fully happy. It's impossible for the infinite sadness to be filled with some second mm -hmm. infinite because if God is infinite good, there's not some other infinite good, nor could there be, which leads us to hell. All of this was a really long, like 39-minute prologue about why there is hell. Mm -hmm. Because if you understand why our hearts are longing for heaven, then you understand why anything less than that is going to be hell.
So one of the things that we can fail to grasp is that not only heaven, but hell are both things that begin now in this life during our time here on earth. So C.S. Lewis has a great quote from his book, The Great Divorce. And he says, quote, the good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. And the bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why the blessed will say, we've never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. So both are things that by the decisions that we're making in our everyday life, we're grasping for heaven or we're making that decision to move away from God and making heaven and hell begin now. Yeah, exactly. So I actually was listening to a thing David Mitchell had on um, why it's absurd to live for the moment. And he's not approaching this from a religious perspective, Mm -hmm. but he had what I thought was a really insightful example. We're going to use one more sports analogy. (laughs) He was talking about watching, I think it was tennis matches. Mm -hmm. It's not even a sport I like. And he talked about how if he were to rank these three different tennis matches he had watched, well, he would rank the one where there had been a very long bout and then the guy he was rooting for won in the end. Mm. But during it, there was a sense in which he didn't know if he was enjoying it or not. Yeah, yeah. Because he didn't know if he was watching what would be an epic triumph or an epic disaster. (laughs) At the end of all this time. And so maybe you've had this experience watching a movie. Where if the movie wraps up really nicely. You're like that was a really impressive movie. But the same thing. Had the last five minutes been different. You would have been like I wasted two hours. Because the whole time you're building up. Towards the finale. Mm -hmm. Well that's how life is. Not just with movies and sports. But all of life itself. That you can look at where you were in the past. And if you can say, it led me to here, and that's good, well, then all of those past failures aren't so bad. If you say, it's led me to this place, and I'm, I'm miserable, I'm a terribly unhappy person, well, then it seems like maybe I've wasted my entire life. Mm. Now, obviously, this is true in an epic, eternal sense with heaven and hell. But there is a sense in which we see little bits of heaven and little bits of hell and how we're living now mm-hmm. in the preparations for one or the other. Uh, But I think because of this, we also should talk at least very briefly about confession. It's advised to go to confession during Advent. There are a lot of Advent penance services Mm -hmm. in a parish near you. And some people listening are maybe very aware of their need to go to confession. Mm -hmm. But others might think, well, I only have venial sins. I don't have anything too terrible. I'm not, as far as I can tell, en route to going to hell. So why should I really bother? Well, my friend Joe Manzari sent me um, a little thing on the need to confess venial sins recently. It's from Introduction to the Devout Life, and I'm trying not to take it personally, Joe. (laughs) But he says, be sure always to entertain a hearty sorrow for the sins you confess, however small they are, as also a steadfast resolution to correct them in the future. Some people go on confessing venial sins out of mere habit and conventionally, without making any effort to correct them thereby losing a great deal of spiritual good. And then he gives a lot of examples of this. And he says, don't be satisfied with mentioning the bare fact of your venial sins, but accuse yourself of the motive cause which led to them. For instance, do not be content with saying that you told an untruth which injured no one. But say whether it's out of vanity, in order to win praise or avoid blame, out of heedlessness or from obstinacy. 
So basically, take the opportunity of going to confession to really explore not only what did you do wrong, but why did you do it wrong? So as listeners probably know, I work for School of Faith, as do you. (laughs) And Dave, one of our colleagues, Dave Staples, um, was giving a talk to a group of teachers. And he had them do two things. On the left side, he had them talk about situations that were really stressful or difficult for them right now. On the right side of the page, he had them uh, write down some of the things they weren't proud of that they had done recently. Didn't even have to necessarily be a sin, but I think a lot of these things tended to be. And then he said, do you find that there's a relationship between the things on the left and the things on the right? And he was struck by how some of the people who he had said this to had just never really explored why do they do the things that they do? Mm -hmm. What are the motives that, that trigger these sinful actions? Well, so we can all stand, I think, to be a little more mindful of why we commit even venial sins. And the more we get in the habit of being mindful of our even small sins and why we do them, the more we can get to the evil roots, the things that draw us away from the happiness that we're made for, the happiness that we long for, the happiness that we're always pursuing. So I think it's a good thing to try to do in Advent. Yeah, so we definitely encourage you, if you haven't been to confession during this season, especially in a season where we've spent a lot of time just discussing that ultimate goal of sainthood to make that decision, small decision, um, to go to confession during this time and to really be authentic and vulnerable with Christ in the confessional and get down to the roots of the reasons why you're choosing those lesser goods or those evils in your life. Yeah, if you want to use a final cooking analogy, just to break from all the <laughs> sports analogies. That's right. Um, if you're making something, it tastes just a little off. You want to go back and find out, like, what are the ingredients that... Mm-hmm. Maybe I've got a little too much of this. Maybe I've got a little too little of that. Uh, Bishop Robert Barron, he has a fantastic uh, podcast with his homilies. And he talks about mountains and valleys. When we're talking about making straight the path of Christ. Mm-hmm. Wherever you have a mountain, it by definition creates a valley by it. So if you're giving too much time in one area, you're not giving enough in the other. So what are the mountains and valleys? What are the ingredients you've got a little too much of, a little too little of? Maybe what are the ingredients that have gone a little sour? Mm-hmm. What are the things that need to be set right? You need to be sweetening, if you will. And then it'll make for a better Christmas. It'll make for a better life. And it'll make for a better eternity. Mm-hmm. So let's close out this episode in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.